Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanick with Figured Out Baseball. Uh, we've got a really good Figured Out Baseball podcast today. We're being joined by Anthony Williams, who is the head coach at Frostburg State, a Division II school in Frostburg, Maryland. Uh, I'll give you a bit, put a quick bit of background on Coach Williams before we jump into the podcast with him. He is a Pasadena, Maryland native. In college, uh, he went to Slippery Rock University, a Division II school in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, where he played played baseball there. Um, began his coaching career as a graduate assistant at Frostburg State. At the time that he was there, the springs of 2009 and 10, uh, they were Division III, a Division Three school, and have since transitioned to Division II. Uh, as even though he was a graduate assistant, he also served as the recruiting coordinator, hitting coach, and infield coach at Frostburg. In his two seasons there in 2009 and 10, the team went 57 and 29 combined. They won the conference regular season championship in 2010. In 2011, uh, he spent one year as an assistant coach at UMBC, a Division I school in Maryland. In 2012 through 2016, he took his first head coaching job. He was the head coach at Pitt Greensburg, a Division III school in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, not far from Pittsburgh. In uh, 2012, his 2012 team uh, had a winning record for the first time in program history, pretty impressive in his first year as the head coach. In 2014, they, they set a new program record for wins. They advanced to the conference championship. And then 2015, they set a school record again for wins. He left Pitt Greensburg as the winningest coach in program history. From 2011 through 15, uh, while he was at Pitt Greensburg, he was also a part of the Pittsburgh Pirates video advanced scouting department where he helped prepare scouting reports and gather video for the Pittsburgh Pirates. From 2017 through 2019, he was the head coach at Clarion University, a Division II school in Clarion, Pennsylvania. 2019 team... Uh, had the had the team had this program second highest win total uh, in program history. They also had the best conference finish in 14 years in 2019. And then 2020 was his first season as the head coach at Frostburg. Obviously, the 2020 season was cut short. Um, 2020 was also the first year that Frostburg transitioned to Division II. Um, so that was. It was a bit of a challenge there, I'm sure, and that's something we can certainly get into in the podcast. But, Coach Williams, I appreciate you being on the podcast with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, you know, tough to fit all that on one sheet of paper for a resume, I, I imagine, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is, but we like having people here. I, I like I like talking to people, really, of any, you know, guys that just got in uh, to coaching, guys that have been coaching for 25 years. Uh, I, I enjoy coaching or talking to everybody. I think there are different, a lot of different perspectives. In, in your perspective, I'm certainly interested in, in hearing for different reasons. Um, but, I, I mean, this, the amount of experience you've had, you're a young head coach, uh, and, and you've won different places, which always is always one of the things that I enjoy talking about. Um, you've had a lot of success everywhere that you've been, and I'm sure that Frostburg will be no different. And, uh, you know, typically, Coach, I like to start with something – from your resume that stands out as I'm going through things. And I guess uh, one of the things that stood out to me was just how young you were. Now, obviously, you went to grad school, but how young you were when you got your first head coaching job. Um, and you had some success that first season, had the program's first, Pitt Greensburg's first uh, winning season in program history. What was that like for you to be a young head coach and, and kind of some of the growing pains you might have gone through. I mean, you, you were an assistant coach for three years and two of those as a grad assistant before you took your first head coaching job uh, at the college level, nonetheless. Uh, what was that like for you at that time? 
Yeah, I was 26 when I got hired at Pitt Greensburg, and I can tell you one with 100% certainty, I definitely wasn't ready for all the things that come with being a head coach, you know, and the leadership that follows and all that, but, you know, you get into the job and you learn on the fly, and, uh, you know, fortunately for me, I had great mentors and people I could lean on to kind of help me. Um, probably one of the toughest things that, that happened was that we had a lot of success right away. And then you start thinking as a young coach, I got this figured out. We set the school record for wins and, and the first winning season of program history in my very first year as a head coach. So I'm thinking, man, I, I know what I'm doing. I got this I got this figured out. And then and then you get served some humble pie and, and then you gotta kinda start to really um, get down to what makes a great coach, what makes a great leader and, and you know, fortunately, like I said, I had great people to lean on and people I could talk to, like Guy Robertson and Frostburg, like Clint Hurdle, and, and the time I spent with him, um, the five years I spent in, in Pittsburgh, uh, probably are some of the most influential years of my life. But, you know, it, it was great because I was able to do a lot of different things at Pitt Greensburg on my own. I didn't really have much of a staff, at least when I first got there. And, you know, you kind of had to do everything. I was I was doing sports information. I was doing intramurals. I was dragging the field. I was doing the weightlifting. You know, when you're when you're at a small school like that, and, and you're, um, you know, it was a part-time position at the time when I first got there. It became full-time later. You, know, you got to learn to kind of do everything yourself. So for a young guy, um, you know, it's certainly it's certainly something that helps you grow as a coach and as a person. Having wearing all those hats, I'm sure, also gives you more appreciation as as you're able to hire some people to take over some of those responsibilities or you move on to a different school that might have some more resources. It certainly gives you better perspective. Um, but it also probably gives you perspective when um, if you have an assistant coach who feels like he's too busy or doesn't you know, get things done that you would expect, I would imagine that it probably creates for you um, a certain expectation for work ethic because of things that you've done. Is that, do you find that being true with, with your assistants at any point? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest challenges for me now, um, really my last year at Clarion and then now at Frostburg where I have staff around me every day, is making sure that I'm organized with, with the, the duties and responsibilities that I'm asking them to do and making sure that I'm um, being clear with that and that it's, it's all spelled out for them and then I can kind of create lanes for each guy because that's not something I had to do early in my career. It was like everything was in my lane, you know, so now it's more of the delegation and managing the people that work with you every day. And um, so that's definitely been something that I've had to adjust to over the last couple of seasons. How do you overcome the challenge of delegating? Um, at, you know, as someone that used to do it all, I, I'm sure in, in one respect, you want to get some responsibility off your plate, but in another respect, like you, you probably have a certain way you like things to be done you know, when you're hiring assistants and giving them responsibility, you know, how, how easy or difficult is it for you to uh, to let them just do their thing and not be over their shoulder all the time? Or or do you like to sort of set your expectation early and, and kind of have some influence on different positions? Just kind of curious how you handle your assistant coaching positions and, and the responsibilities that you give them. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, number one, you have to hire the right people, you know, the people that you trust to do the job, and you have to let them do their job. And then, and then the second thing is, you know, you have to have clarity. You have to, you have to have a lot of clarity in what your expectations are. And I think, you know, putting it on paper is probably the best way to do it. So what I did um, the last couple of years, and, and I really kind of, you know, dove a little bit more this year because I had a bigger staff, was creating, creating lanes for each guy on my staff. What does it look like on the field? 
What does it look like in the office? What does it look like in recruiting? What does it look like with, you know, our travel? Um, and just each of those kind of subtopics and what each of those guys' responsibilities are, you know, with those, with those topics. So they kind of know where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do, but also what each other guy is responsible for doing too. So it takes a little bit of time on the front end to kind of maybe map that out or put that together. And it's, you know, a lot of back and forth, rough drafts and, and, and redoing things and tweaking it based on who you have. Um, but this way, you know, if you have the framework, then you know as well as I do, assistant coaches are coming to go on all the time. And, you know, especially when you have grad assistants and things like we do with their two-year position, you kind of really need to have done your, your, your work on the front end so that when, when new guys come into your program, you can give them a, a roadmap, but then also start to tweak on what they do well, what their strengths are, and kind of go from there. So. Well, that was kind of my next question. Do you do you have positions that where you say, okay, to get this position, or if you're going to come into this position, you know, your responsibilities are X, Y, and Z, or do you um, do you change what their responsibilities might be a little bit year to year, depending who your staff is, depending what their strengths and weaknesses are? Like, do you force guys to come in and say, okay, the second assistant position, you're going to coach outfielders and catchers and, and whatever else? How do you... Uh, dictate who does what I want to get the best guys possible if that means I need to change what I do um, then I think that I, I'm probably the most universal because having done a lot of different things so if I if I have <clears throat> two really great pit, you know hitting guys and that means I need to take more of a role with the pitchers you know that's what I'll do because I want to get the best guys possible and instead of trying to, to find that perfect fit for what I have on paper if that makes sense how do you know which guys are the best guys um, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're interviewing, do you hire people that you've known in the past? Do you like to hire people who maybe they have a reference that you're familiar with that you know you can trust? Or, or are you willing to hire someone that you have no connection with whatsoever if they interview well and, they're, um, you know, and, and their references speak highly of them? So just, just kind of curious about your process when you're hiring. Yeah, I think all those things factor into it. Um, you know, the references, where they've been, what they've done. Well, on top of all of those, you know, traditional things, one of the things I like to look for is, you know, have they put stuff on paper? Have they created plans? Have they created a system or a program? Like, um, you know, I think that's one of my biggest pieces of advice for young coaches is put put pen to paper and put your thoughts down in an organized format. When you start doing that, um, you're going to realize, you know, what type of coach you are and the things you where you need to add and, and um but I, I'm a big believer in that. So I look for guys that, you know, what, have, what can you show me? What can you bring to the table? And have you got a system in place? Have you used something in the past that's worked? So I like seeing plans and organization and that sort of thing on top of all the other things you mentioned with, you know, with the, the references and things like that. I hired two guys last year, Clarion and Jason Rosendahl, who was a pitching coach. from He was down at Mississippi Delta Community College. Never met him in my life. Hired him over the phone. And I hired Doc Nyman, who I had met. You know, only a few weeks prior, but I knew his brother Nolan um, from from years past when he was at the University of Maryland, and I hired both of those guys with, with really not knowing them very well at all. And but they had they had some they had they had a, a plan, they had experience, you know, at different colleges, and they were baseball guys, you know, and so uh, it worked out really really well for for everybody. This is an interesting subject to me, just uh, and it's interesting in case. I think if there are you know, if there's a high school coach out there who would like to get to the college level, or there's someone listening to this who wants to break in, you know, two college maybe they just finished playing or whatever it may be. When you say put you know pen to paper, 
uh, put some, you know, write some plans out that you've that you've got, um, or or you know, what exactly, what would you like to see? I guess what's impressive to you with um, a young guy that would be applying for a job, like what sort of documentation or whatever would be impressive to you to see from a guy like that? Well, well, let's just use pitching as an example. So I would like to see a plan of what does your pitching program entail? What, what are the five days in between my starts? So what am I doing? You know, what does my conditioning look like? What does my arm care look like? Um, you know, what does my lifting look like? My throwing protocols? Like, putting all that in, a, in an organized format, that's, that's great. Um, you know, just because you had success pitching at the college level, um, you know, five years ago or whatever, doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to just translate to, to these guys. And I think I think one of the things I take away, um, it, it's a quote, I don't know where I heard this quote, I, I saw it recently from a, from a, um, a session that I, my buddy Dylan Mazzo did, it was with the Angels, and a quote that he had in his presentation, I can't remember where it's from, but said, it said something to the effect of, um, you know, if you hear it, you forget it. You know, if you see it, you remember it, and if you do it, you understand it. So I think, you, you know, you've got to start with the see it to remember. So I, I like I like to think that our guys are all visual learners this day and age. So the more stuff we can give them that they can see it on paper and they can they can understand start to understand the plan, you know, I think that's super important. So, um, you know, that's just from the pitching side of things, that's just one example of creating a weekly plan for the guys. Is, you know, I start on Saturday. What's the rest of my week look like for everything that I need to be doing? To get ready for for the following Saturday. And are these things that, that are these things that you would like? If I was to send you a resume, you have a job opening. I'm going to send my resume to you. Should I send that with the resume, or is that something that you like to ask for? Like when you get into uh, actually actually speaking with some of these guys during interviews. You know, when when is the right time to put that stuff out there when you're applying for a job? Yeah, I, I mean that's a good question. I, I think that I probably tend to look at the resume first to see, you know, if there's common ground, where you've been, where you're from, that sort of thing. That's probably where I, my, my mind will, or my, where I'll drift first. And then from there, if I like what I see, then I'll start to look at, you know, the other things. So it, it, it really can be either or, but, you know, if you're going to want to catch somebody's attention, maybe we don't have any common ground at all, then that's probably a good thing to do is to attach some plans because, um, you know, a year ago when I did hire Jason, uh, we, were, we were interviewing pitching coaches over the phone and and, and that was, we were diving right into it fairly quickly, like, about the plans and, and what they were going to bring to the table. So I'd say if you don't have any sort of connection, you definitely want to make sure you, you catch their attention in another way. And, and I'll, I'll also go on record saying, Jeff, there's a lot of great high school coaches that are better than college coaches. I, I know that for a fact. Um, it's just, you know, a lot of high school coaches are also, and I think that sometimes, you know, college coaches you can, can easily forget that they're teachers as well. And I think that the organization and skills taught to young men as they go through college, if they're in education and they learn how to formulate lesson plans and, and communicate that to their students, there's a huge translation between that and coaching. And, and I think that's why there's a lot of great high school coaches out there that could easily step in and coach at the college level tomorrow. Uh, I really believe that. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think that whether it's right or wrong, and I think it's probably the same in every profession, but you get labels in baseball. You're labeled a high school coach, and, and like it's like regardless of how successful your high school program is and what your background may be, if you're a high school coach, you get labeled a high school coach, and people have a hard time seeing you transitioning to college just because. And even within college, 
Division One, Two, II, and Three guys get their labels. Um, I know I felt like as a Division One coach, I almost felt like it was like a club that like you couldn't get out of because if you got out of it, you're gonna have a hard time getting back into it. I know that. I mean, there are obviously some guys that move around levels, and you've been one of those guys who has been successful going back and forth between levels, and um, you know, going from a Division Three head coach to a Division Two head coach. But there are a lot of guys that have a hard time moving up levels. I mean, for example, I've got a good friend who's a junior college head coach. He's been a junior college head coach for a long time. He's one of the most successful junior college head coaches in the country, and and he gets passed over. You know, he'll he'll apply to one or two jobs a year at the four-year level. And he has a hard time even getting an interview at some of those places, I think, because he gets a label as a, a junior college guy, and, and there just aren't the same academic requirements. You know, but it's like people, ADs that are making the hiring, that are, that are doing the hiring are ignoring the fact that his, you know, his players have graduated at this rate with their associate's degree, obviously not their four-year degree, but their associate's, and his kids are moving on to four-year schools and having good productive careers. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just an unfortunate thing. And, again, I'm sure it's the same in every profession, but some guys – tend to get labels and, and I think those high school coaches that want to get into the college game um, there's no doubt that, that those sort of stigmas exist uh, since we're on that topic I, I kind of this is an, a thread that's interesting to me that we haven't really talked about much in past podcasts let's kind of stick on this for a while if that's all right with you um, sure. if there's a high school coach out there who's listening to this who is that guy that wants to jump into the college ranks you know besides just sending your resume out there what are some things that a college or that a high school coach could do? Or heck, I mean, it really extends to almost every level of coaching. What are some things that you could do out there if you wanted to move up a level? So if you're a Division three or Division two coach and you want to move up, you're an NAIA coach, a JUCO coach, or even a high school coach that wants to jump into the to the college level. Are there any things outside of just again sending a resume that that you think someone could do to increase their chances of of moving up levels, whether it be find a way to meet different people or network or, or, or whatever it is. Do you have any advice for someone who might have those aspirations? It, that's an easy one. I think the number one thing is to use social media. Not to promote yourself, but to put out there what you're, you know, what you're all about. You know, I think that you've seen professional organizations hire hitting coaches from that weren't even coaching high school or college. They were just running a facility somewhere because they're, they're putting their stuff out there. Um, they're sharing thoughts and ideas. You know, and, and and some people are better at it than others, but I think that's, that's an easy number one way, you know, to at least, you know, allow people to see what you're all about and, you know, being able to use social media. I mean, you can, it could be just a drill that you're doing a practice or it could be, a, you know, a practice plan that you're sharing. Um, and, and, and people can go to your Twitter page and see, see what you're sharing and you start to build a following. And, you know, I think that that's the number one way for me. And I think that's um, you, you've seen tons of people have success. If you if you're on social media, especially probably Twitter, maybe more than others, um, it's for, for for this purpose. But I think that you you see that quite a bit. 2019 was like the year of guys getting hired. Uh, in, in early early 2020, I guess before this kind of maybe in the off season, like the the fall, and, uh, you saw a lot of guys that they got hired. I think it can become if you're going to do that. I think you've got to be careful not to make it a self promotion thing because I think that and maybe you're the same way but you're not but sometimes like you can you can almost like smell the intent behind the post like is this a promote is this a, a post to promote yourself and try to get this job or are you just trying to share information and at least from my perspective 
it's the sharing of information that's going to help you. If you're a, if you're if you're a selfless promoter, you you might end up with getting a job. But I think it rubs some people the wrong way to see too much of that stuff. I agree, and I think people can tell when you're authentic and genuine and when you're not. Um, you know, but if you're genuinely asking questions, and, and you know, you can use social media just to ask questions to. You know, I get questions from high school coaches all the time about, hey, what do you guys think about this? Or I'll get a text message about, you know, hey, what do you guys use? You know, in your infield, you know, that sort of thing. So um, definitely, you touched on it a minute ago with like the networking piece. I mean, it's not always about just going to the convention and just trying to talk to people that way. I mean. You know, college coaches were constantly in touch with high school coaches and travel ball coaches. You know, this right now more than ever probably because of not being able to go out and see games. So, you know, just I would my advice would be just to kind of ask questions and just try to use your own your platforms, things you already have like social media to try to um, put yourself out there as much as you can. Do you think it also helps to try to connect with people at conventions or to try to like work a camp? Like if I want to, if I'm a high school coach and I'm interested in coaching in college, does it, you know, where I live personally, um, I, you know, Penn State's about 45 minutes from me. There's a, there's a couple of Penn State branch campuses aren't that aren't far. Uh, they're division at the Division three level. Um, there are there are a handful of good, really good Division twos around me. Clarion's not that far. Like if I were a high school coach right now and I wanted to break into college, is that a way? Because that that used to be something that people would do. This is kind of before social media uh, was really a thing, but is that, uh, does that still work? Is that still a good way to, for you as a head coach to just to get to know somebody a little bit? Yeah, I think, I mean, in my opinion, at least the camps are still, uh, you know, one of the best ways to, you know, network and show other coaches what you're capable of and, and what you're all about because you're, you're coaching with those other coaches right then and there. I mean, at a convention, yes, you're, you're meeting people and having conversations, but you're not you're not instructing. So, uh, you know, just case in point with me, you know, I was able, I got a job at UMBC based on just doing their camps in the summertime. Um, Coach Shankishe, uh, who was at the end of his career, actually, he, I worked his camps all summer long. He liked what I was teaching and said, you know, would you be interested in coming on board in the fall and joining our staff? And, um, you know, so that worked for me. And I, I think, you know, even, even nine, ten years later, I still think it's true now um, because I just mentioned in 2019 how I hired Doc Nyman, I'd worked at camp in Philadelphia at St. Joseph's University. We do their team camps all summer long, and that's where I met Doc, working camp, um, just watching him instruct, getting to talk to him there, you know. And that's and now he's now he's the head coach at Clarion. So fast forward a year, he, he he's in a good spot, and that's all just from networking at a camp. So I, I totally agree with that. I got I know that I got the volunteer job at Winthrop, um, a, a pretty good Division One school in South Carolina. Uh, I know I got that job because I worked camps down there, and I I met their pitching coach, and I saw uh, probably the year, I think a year after I worked camp there, I saw their pitching coach out in the road, and, and that's how I got to know him in the first place was through camp, and he said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, yeah, I'm I'm still coaching at, at this junior college and kind of looking for opportunities, and he said, our volunteer job's open if you're interested. And I know that I would not have gotten that opportunity had I not worked their camp. Obviously, that was a while ago. Um, but even even as a... For me personally, I'm not in the college game anymore, but even as a, when I was a Division One assistant, like, I'm out recruiting and, and kind of like, everyone you meet sort of thinking, like, would I work for this person and or would they be a good fit on our staff? Because I was always kind of under, uh, or, or took the perspective that, I mean, at any time a, an opening, a job could open, like, our, our 
a couple years after I left, our uh, the pitching coach at the school where I was, he left mid-year and took a pitching job in the Astros organization. And, like, when something like that comes up, like, in my opinion, you want to have guys in mind as opposed to just taking blind resumes. This is how I looked at it anyway. Uh, I mean, the blind resume can work as well, but I think it always helps to say, like, hey, I, I know that this guy, this guy, and this guy, they're people that I've seen. I've seen them scout. I've seen them coach at camp. I think they'd be a good fit for us. And, uh, you know, to me that was always a way to just to get to know somebody a little bit. I mean, you really spend – you work enough camps, you really get to spend some time with people, and you get to see them coach, you get to know them a little bit. Um, anyway, yeah, that was my perspective. Yeah, you know, you know the, the uh, coaching circles are really tight, too. You know, baseball is a small fraternity, um, small network of coaches, so you're right. You kind of mentioned at the beginning, just to kind of switch gears a little bit, you mentioned at the beginning um, – with your first head coaching job, you know, you, you kind of, you had, you got some clarity, I guess, once you, you had some success and then you got kicked in the face a little bit. Um, then, and you said that, that kind of helped you to see what makes a great coach and what makes a great leader. So just to kind of transition from hiring someone to just your perspective, your, your definition of things, you know, to you, for you to become the best coach you can be, to be a great coach, you know, what, what does that really entail to you? What, what is a great college baseball coach look like? What what are some um, what are some characteristics of a great coach in your opinion? Uh, that's a great question. That's a loaded question, but you know I, I think um, you know first of all it's about connecting with the student athletes and their families and the recruiting process and, and being able to and everybody I know this gets overused but building the relationships um, I, it becomes so much less about what you know, how great of a hitting instructor you are, or, you know, etc., and more about managing people. And I think that's where, you know, like the 26-year-old, you know, coaching myself when I first got to pick Greensburg, it was, you know, I felt like I had a pretty good idea what I was doing from playing career to being able to instruct and that sort of thing, and um, to fast-forwarding years later and really learning about what leadership is. And that really changed for me with, with you know, getting to work with Clint Hurdle in Pittsburgh and, and seeing how he connected with people, how he managed people, how he built relationships with people. And that really started to turn the wheels under what this whole thing's all about, what leadership really is. And if you're the, the face of any organization, whether it's a business or a, a coach at a, um, a university, um, you know, you really aren't you know, responsible for, for individuals and for people and their, their betterment and their development. So really that that's where things focused on less about you know how many wins do I have what you know where do we stack up this year in, in our in our stats and all that kind of stuff and wins and losses and then it became a lot more about you know the other the other things that I mentioned and those and realizing that those are way more important than the wins and losses and some of that comes with I think maturity too no doubt about that but I think the relationship stuff for a lot of coaches, tends to come a little bit later because at the beginning you're so. You want to make a name for yourself. You know, you want to you want to have success and prove to people that you can do the job. But when you're 26 years old, that's all you got. You know, you got what's right in front of you, and you want to be able to show people, hey, man, I, I can do this thing, and I can do this job. And, and I think that that's that's not uncommon. Um, you know, but then like I said, when you get older and you want to be able to look back and define success more than just numbers in the in the win column and loss column. You know, I, I I promise you, man. I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of going back to my players' weddings and, and 
and just seeing seeing them interact and, and realizing that they came to the school that I recruited them to come to as complete strangers and now they're at each other's weddings and they're celebrating together and they met their wife there and, and you get a lot of satisfaction out of that and there's just why you want to stay in coaching is, is just the, you know, the relationships that you get to build and, and see them play out over the years so it's very rewarding is the relationship part that you develop with players does that at some point I mean you're still a young coach it's not like you're you know it's not like you're an old coach on the verge of getting out I mean you're still a very young coach in, in, in the grand scheme but does that at some point become maybe I don't, maybe the most important thing I mean obviously success in the field is still important but but do the, are the, do the relationships and what you're building with players trump that at some point for you it probably does. I don't know how to rank it, but, you know, I, I know, I will say this, and, you know, I, I've, I've said it, what I think about relationships and how important they are, but when everybody's interviewing for jobs, we're all as coaches, we're, we're interviewing for jobs, I don't know how many coaches, they ask the question in the interview process, you know, can, can I build relationships here? I think that's just a byproduct of you doing your job effectively. And because at the end of the day, when we were taking these jobs, we want to go somewhere where we feel like we can win because we're all competitors. And I think sometimes that can get lost when we're talking about this, too, is because, you know, I, I did. I come to Frostburg because I want to win championships, and I think we can do that. And we've had a lot of success in history with this program over the years, and you know, I'm looking forward to adding that. Um, but if I do my job effectively, then I'm going to build those positive relationships along the way. Um, so uh, and I don't think it's an either-or thing. Um, but, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that coaches and players were all competitors at heart, and you know I do want to win, and and that's certainly one of the biggest reasons why I'm, I'm here today. I think that you can see at almost every level the coach, the coaches that have the longest history of winning and that win in a, on a consistent basis, probably tend to have pretty good relationships with their players. I think it's hard to have a lot of sustained success without that because I think that your players, especially maybe more, even more now than maybe when you and I played, um, I think the players want to know that there's more to it than just you, you just want – they're supposed to be a, a part of the um, – of a wins and loss, you know, win, the win-loss calls. I think they, they want to know that there's it's more than that and that you're, you're there for more than that and there's um, – there's a bigger picture to it. Like they, you want more than that from them. Like you, you actually care about them, and they. I think players want to know that. I think players want to see that um, your level of commitment goes deeper than just what they can do for you on the field. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think, you know, just like I said, it's a byproduct of the culture you create, and and, and a byproduct of how well you and effective you are at doing your job. And I think, you know, keeping keeping tabs on your guys on and off the field, checking in with them, especially right now during during this COVID situation. I mean, those are all just little examples of, of coaching the player first. Or I'm sorry, coaching the person first and the player second. And, um, you, you know, so, and again, I think guys can see when you're authentic and genuine with that and when you're not. So. Now, what is a good leader for a team? I mean, we, we talked a little bit just about what makes a, a good a coach a good coach. Um but as far as being a leader, as far as just being more than a head coach, you know, providing leadership to your players day-to-day, week-to-week, season-to-season, what does that mean to you? What do you think your responsibilities are as the leader of a program? 
Yeah, another good question, and I think something that um, I take from from my lessons that I learned with Clint Hurdle is just you know leadership can come in in all shapes, sizes, and colors, and it's it's different for everybody. But I think having a steady hand, especially when things get get rocky, I think is probably the most important thing because um, when there's adversity, adversity is going to hit, and when it does. You know, the guys are going to look around to see what to do, you know, and they're going to be looking at you. So um, setting a good example on and off the field, you know, modeling, you know, you, you know the behavior that you, that you want to see in your guys and giving them a good example to look up to. But I, I certainly believe in that steady hand. Um, and, and maybe a little bit because I'm a younger coach and I can still do some of these things, but one of the things I, I took from a talk with Brian Kane, and if there's – uh, you know, any coaches listening that haven't heard it, I mean, if you go to the virtual baseball coaches summit, something, something like that, and he did a talk during this COVID thing, and the last couple minutes of his talk was probably some of the most influential things I've heard in a while. And he was talking about, you know, as a leader, um, he's talking more specific to mental strength and our mental conditioning, but um, he's talking about living it. And, you know, that's something that I, I strive to do a little bit more now is trying to live it with these guys, um, getting out there, taking ground balls with them, getting in the cage with them, um, trying to live, you know, off the field, the behavior that I'm, I'm expecting them to live um, as well. And, and I think that that's, you know, it, as much as you can, you know, obviously I'm not going to be able to do that my entire life, but, um, you know, if I, can, if I can live it as much as I can with those guys, then I'm going to try to. There are a lot of coaches out there who, are the do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do type, and, and they want something out of their players that they don't give back. And um, <laughs> I can remember early in my career, I heard uh, there was a Division One Division One head coach who had the philosophy that he he would not ask his guys to do any conditioning routines that, like, he couldn't do himself. And um, I think there's probably a line. <laughs> I don't know if that's one that, that most coaches want to cross, but... But to a point, no, I think that I think the players enjoy. I don't know. To me, it just it makes you more real when you can when you can go out there and take a ground ball with them or get in the cage and, and do something. And um, even if you're obviously they can see that you're not what you what you once were, but just to be able to do that, I think just makes you more real, really, to them. Yeah, I mean that that's for sure. You definitely aren't what you once were. But um, you know, my guys will tell you, you know, I definitely get in there and do the conditioning stuff with them from time to time. Not every time. Um, but, I mean, if you look at a guy like Coach Backage in Michigan, I can guarantee you he could probably whoop half the guy's butts um, in conditioning that, that he coaches. Um, and that's something when he was at the University of Maryland, you know, I, I really kind of took to how he how he did things, um, working his camps and stuff like that back then. And he got in there with him. You know, he was diving in, and, and, and I think that that probably comes from his time working under Jack Leggett who is very similar in that regard, too. So, um, yeah, as much as I can, I try to get in there with the guys and, and even even the tough stuff like the conditioning just to kind of reemphasize the point of us being kind of all in this together and um, kind of all of us as teammates, not just, you know, the coaches and players being separate. I was actually just going to bring up Coach Leggett. I know one of the last years that he was the head coach at Clemson, I saw something on, uh, I guess, in their in their, their challenge at the end of the fall, kind of their, their strength challenge, their – uh, strength and conditioning challenge, whatever it was. I think he, um, <laughs> I believe he led his team in pull-ups. <laughs> That's pretty impressive because he's not, he's not a, uh, you know, the 35-year-old anymore. But he's also, he's always been that kind of fiery guy that likes to get in there and get and mix it up with his guys. And I know that I used to work some Clemson camps, and I really appreciated that about him. Like during every day, you know, they have 
300 kids at Clemson camp that would be in the stands, and, and he would have a talk every morning, and one of them was about was playing catch, and it was always him. He was the one that was de- – he was he would demo long toss. Basically, he would demo like, okay, this is what you do when you're close. This is how you back up, and he's the one that's making these throws, and eventually it was him and his volunteer, and, and they'd back up to whatever, 150, 200 feet or whatever it was, and, and Coach Leggett's making the throws, and he's hitting the guy in the chest every time. And I know it was almost like a running joke with the coaches who would work these things regularly that there was a lot of pressure on the volunteer – to now bounce one because Coach Leggett was not going to bounce one. <laughs> Coach Leggett was going to put it in his chest every time. And it was great. It was just great to watch. And, like, I know that, like, that kind of stuff stuck with me as well. And that's, that's another thing about working camps as a young coach is obviously you learn a lot, but and, and you hope to meet other people and network, but uh, you're, you're going you're, you're gonna to learn some things from people who know a lot more than you that, uh, that you, you can carry on with you at whatever level you're coaching and, and certainly make yourself a better coach. Uh, it, it, while you're doing it. Yeah, there's no question about it. You know, we all kind of steal from each other in, in, in a good way. And as long as we're giving credit, I guess. Um, but, you know, I'd like a, just to touch back on Coach Leggett and stuff like that, but that brings energy to your to your practice, to your team. Um, our, our guys, I can tell you from this fall, you know, when I, we did like a one-on-one challenge, um, and me, I went at the very end against our pitching coach. He ended up beating me, but it was, you know, sled pushes, sled pulls, med ball throws. And it was tough, man. I had a hard time moving after that. But, um, you know, I know that it brought a lot of energy to finish off our practice and, and, and for our session that day. And, and uh, you know, so I enjoy doing that as much as I can. So. That's, it's funny. Um, <laughs> one of the junior colleges I coached, we set up, uh, we, we did the week-long challenge like a lot of schools do at the end of the fall. And, and we had this, um, like, a gauntlet type of thing for the last day. So coaches are down there, and, like, we're setting the whole thing up, and, like, you're, you're carrying weights and throwing med balls, and you're doing a lot, of, a lot of stuff. And it's, like, I don't know, two and a half minutes long, where for two and a half minutes you're, you know, you're, you're killing yourself, and we're going to do it for time. And so, like, the coaches set it up, and we're all, like, in our, in our like, golf shorts and whatever. And, you know, the coach, other coaches look at me, and they're like, well, let's see what kind of time we can get out of this. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. Yeah, come on, go ahead and do it. So I ended up doing it. I kind of set the time, and I know obviously, like, no stretch whatsoever beforehand, no, no warm up. I just kind of went into it. And at the end of it, I laid in the ground for like five minutes and I'm telling the other coaches, like, I think my lungs are bleeding. <laughs> so I think I can. You want to you want to take some precautions as an older guy. Yeah, we saw our guys the foam roll. We're doing all the stretching, and then we just jump in there. Yeah, I can't wash for a week after you're done. Um, I'd love to talk with you about just the time you spent with the Pirates uh, as the as an advanced scouting department in, in the advanced scouting department. Uh, you know, working with video, getting scouting reports and, and video together for the team. You know, first of all, if you don't just we were talking earlier about how to get a job. How'd you how'd you wind up getting that job? So I'll give you the short version of the story. I spent two years as a grad assistant at Frostburg. I got to meet Jim Riggleman, who is one of our most probably our most prominent alumni. Um, Jim played at Frostburg State back in the 1970s, and, you know, Jim at the time uh, was, I believe, he had just gotten a job with the Nationals as the manager, and Jim comes back to homecoming every year, every single year from back when I was a grad assistant, and even this year, um, I see him every year at homecoming, and when I was a 23-year-old grad assistant, I wanted to get into professional baseball. I really didn't know in what facet or what avenue I wanted to go. I didn't even know what all the options were, to be honest. Um, and then I spoke to him a little bit, and he said, well, why don't you come to the winter meetings, and I'll introduce you to some people and, you know, see where it goes. And so I did that, went out to the winter meetings, and, you know, next thing I know, I had an interview with the Nationals, and um, 
that was the following year after I left Frostburg, and I was at UMBC at the time. And so I had a, an opportunity to go join the Nationals after the UMBC season ended, and it wasn't a paid position. It was just like, hey, you're going to come in, you're going to get some experience, we're going to show you the ropes and um, that sort of thing. And I was living in Baltimore, so it wasn't very far. And then right before, uh, or sometime in, in late March, right before our season ended at UMBC, I got a call from um, you know, the guy, the guy named Eric Dalton, who I think believe now is with the Philadelphia Phillies, but he calls me and says, hey, you know, I know we have this position for you um, with the Nationals this summer, but we just got a call from the Pirates. They're looking for a guy for this season that's paid, and it would start, like, you know, opening day, like in April. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I jumped on it. I talked to Coach Jenkins at UMBC, ended up leaving UMBC before the season ended to go to Pittsburgh, and it started right away. I had, like, a week to pack and move and I just packed up my entire life from Baltimore went to Pittsburgh and I was only planning on being there just for the season and seeing what happens and then next thing you know I spent eight and a half years in Pittsburgh between Greensburg and Clarion and, and then you know now I ended up back here at Frostburg but um, it was because of the, the relationship I built with, with Jim Riggleman at the time back in 2010 and you know he helped kind of get me in the door so can't say how many times I heard hey you just got to be in the right place at the right time and you know as a young guy that gets frustrating to hear but then it happens for you, and then you're like, oh, okay, I guess that's what they meant. So. <laughs> and the more places that you are, the better your odds are of being in the right place at the right time. So. <laughs> I guess so. I, guess so. I, don't, I don't necessarily uh, you know, think that, that's, that there's one right way to go about it, and I've certainly taken more chances than, than some people, but um, you know, it works out differently for everybody, I guess. Now your but time. I got there. Now, so once you got the job, you obviously got a chance. You've mentioned several times you built a relationship with Clint Hurdle. I mean, that's a, that's a major league manager you're spending time with. Um, what kind of time did you get to spend with Coach Hurdle? And and you you kind of mentioned some things already, but what kind of? I mean, did he did he actually take some time to talk with you and and to sort of you know to to kind of guide you and and give you some advice? Because when he was first hired in Pittsburgh, you know things didn't end real well for him there. But when he was hired there, he was known to be a great communicator. Um, a really good players coach, like a guy that you wanted to play for, a guy that had the players' backs. You know, relationships with players were probably his number one thing, and you saw that when they when the Pirates had their really good run there, like in the in the mid teens, thirteen, two thousand thirteen to fifteen, whatever it was. Uh, you know, kind of coinciding with your time at Pitt Greensburg as well as with the Pirates. Uh, but how much time did you get to spend with Coach Hurdle? And uh, just kind of curious as to how your interactions went with him and, and just how much you get to talk with him and learn from him. And that's just kind of a, you, you wouldn't always expect someone who was in the, the video scouting department to get a chance to be one-on-one -on -one with the manager. Yeah. So I started in 2011, which was Clint Hurdle's first season with the Pirates as well. And I would say, I'll paint a picture real quick of what the clubhouse looks like. So you walk in the clubhouse doors, and it's like a circle. It goes all the way around back to the doors. And, and around that circle, in the middle, is all the, the players' lockers and, you know, couches and all the TVs and all that stuff. But around the outside of the circle, you have, you know, manager's office, other coaches' office, meeting rooms, weight room, training room, uh, kitchen. Uh, then you have the video room. It's part of the clubhouse. So, you know, if Clint Hurdle, who... who you know, frequents walking around the clubhouse. Um, you know, he made his rounds, talking to everybody. You know, he, he obviously would, would find his way into the to the video room quite often. And you know, that first year, I'd say, you know, got to know him because we 
were responsible for my department and video advanced scouting. We were putting together the video that we had watched for our pre-series meetings, and we would put together the scouting report binders that all the coaches would get and that they would share with the players before each, each series. And they would, you know, if you ever watch a game, you still have the walls, like, you know, statistics, and Clint Hurdle loved to highlight stuff, so everything would be highlighted. Um, but, but that was the stuff that kind of we did behind the scenes. So, you know, you had really close interactions with the players and coaches just because they were always coming in to watch film. We were always working with the coaches on what they want um, for each series in terms of, you know, statistics, numbers. Um, you know, when you started getting into, um, you know, the advanced stuff, you're looking at uh, different sabermetrics and different, you know, we had like heat maps for pretty much everything. And, you know, we're supplying all this stuff to them based on what they want. So we had a pretty good relationship. And then when I got the job at Pitt Greensburg, um, you know, I had let, you know, Clint know that I, you know, hey, I took, took a head coaching job. It's my first one. I'm 26. You know, I really don't know what I'm doing. And he, I remember he gave me a kind of like a list of some things. And I still have it printed out in my office at Frostburg now. And it's just kind of like a, a leadership guide. And it was like six or seven different bullet points on leadership. And he shared that with me, and I, I printed it out, laminated it, and I've kept it ever since. And um, that was just kind of the, the type of guy that he was. He really did a great job of making everybody feel included. You know, when we did our meetings, it wasn't just the, the players and coaches. It was the support staff, the video guys, the advanced scouting report guys, the, the, the trainers, the clubhouse guys. Like, he made it a point to... Um, as you said about being a great communicator, he made everybody feel included in, in what was going on. And that's something that I try to make sure I remember every day with when I'm coaching my guys, making sure if we're doing something as a team, that I invite our athletic trainer, that I invite our strength guy, um, all the support people, maybe it's an assistant AD or maybe it's a sports information person that travels with us, making sure that they all feel included the way that he kind of taught me um, or the way that I learned from him. Uh, you know, so, but spending five years, and as you indicated, in 2013, 14, and 15, you know, we made the playoffs, and, and those were three really incredible uh, seasons. 11 and 12 were good, too. We just kind of fell apart at the end of the year. Um, but, you know, it was, a lot, it was a lot of fun, and I certainly learned a lot, and those were, were five very influential years of my life, for sure. It's got to be great to spend time around someone like that and, and being able to pick their brain and and learn as a young coach, and, and, and not, I don't know if everyone would even recognize or have the guts to, to kind of ask some of the questions you probably asked, Clint Hurdle. How much did your time there, and this may be one of the last things that, that uh, we get into before we wrap it up, but how, how much did your time there affect um, you or, or help you in the future, even just preparing for weekends, you know, putting together your own scouting reports and, and just seeing how, okay, this is how the Pirates prepared before a weekend series. You know, how much of that stuff do you still take with you now that you learned at that time with the Pirates? I, I tried, from the very first time that I coached at Greensburg, I tried to make it as similar as I possibly could um, in terms of video, you know, and it was tough back then. We didn't have as much, you know, on some of your D3 opponents. But um, I, I do it all the time. We have our pre-series meetings. Is, you know, we give as much information as we can. Um, you know, I try to help our guys feel like they're as prepared as possible because I think if they're prepared and they feel prepared, then their, their level of confidence goes up going into the weekend. So I, I try to take the, the video and the scouting part of it that we did, and I try to use, utilize that as much as I possibly can. Um, you know, those are probably – that was what I did every day. So that, that was probably my biggest takeaways other than um, the stuff I mentioned before with the leadership and the organization and communication that I learned. Just, just really not so much asking questions to Clint, but just – 
listening to him and how and watching him and observing him for for really that that length of time that I was there. One last question, Coach Williams, before I let you go. Um, you had a, you were a young guy when you got your first head coaching job, 26 years old. You've had three head coaching jobs now, um, including where you are now at Frostburg State. If you were talking to a first-year head coach at any level um, on this podcast, do you have any advice for that person to kind of help uh, the transition to be smooth and help to have some success? And, and obviously you, you kind of define success as more than just more than just wins and losses, but you, would you have any advice for a first-year head coach um, especially a guy that's kind of getting into it at a young age where he you know, doesn't have a, a, a ton of years as an assistant to go into it to kind of, um, to kind of draw from? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with just like advice for any young coach, not, maybe not just the head coach, but um, I said this before about putting pen to paper. Uh, put your ideas and thoughts in an organized format and, and start to really craft what you believe. Create, create like an identity for yourself because I think right now what's difficult for young coaches is um, – the Twitter influence and, and social media influence, like guys can get confused. Guys can get lost on what they actually believe in because, you know, they may believe in one thing and then you, you watch a video of a guy teaching something different and you're like, oh man, I don't know if I believe that anymore. And, and we do change over time, but you have to, you have to start to think about your core confidence and your core beliefs and the things that are important to you and, and stand by those. So, and I, I think sometimes it can be tough to, you know, it can be a little more challenging nowadays with so much information out there. Um, but you do need to, to think about what's important to you. Put your thoughts, put that pen to paper, write ideas down. And, and one of the biggest things that has helped me is, is just reading books. Um, some people don't like reading books. You can, you know, obviously use the audio, audio book feature or just listen to the podcast. Um, but you can learn a lot from different people. And, you know, those are a couple of the things that really helped me, you know, especially from, from when I, transition from a young coach at Pitt Greensburg to going into Clarion to where I am now was, was reading books, putting more thoughts on paper, and trying to create an identity of what I wanted our culture and my team and everything to be, and then kind of going from there. Very good. Great advice for everybody. I think the reading books part or listening to podcasts, a, a lot of the really good coaches that we've had on this podcast you know, when when we get in, if we get into that question or something similar, a lot of them have, a, have the similar type of advice. Uh, just about continuing to learn and, and even even reading books or listening to podcasts that have nothing to do with baseball, but just maybe maybe leadership type stuff or, or whatever. Um, great 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 advice for a lot of young coaches, head coach or assistants or, or otherwise. Uh, this is Anthony Williams, everybody. He's the head coach at Frostburg State uh, Division Two School in Frostburg, Maryland. He just had his first year with the program in 2020 that was cut short. But uh, we're very anxious to see what happens with you there in the future, Coach Williams. And I uh, want to thank you very much for being a part of the podcast today. I enjoyed the conversation, Jeff, and I appreciate what you do and, you know, helping out not just young coaches but players in the area. And, uh, you know, so I was excited to do that with you today. Appreciate that very much. If you haven't checked it out, if you don't know much about the website, we'd encourage you to check it out at figuredoutbaseball.com. Hundreds of free videos uh, as well as the premium area of the website where we've got a little bit uh, of extra stuff there if, if you're interested in that. But, again, certainly appreciate your time, and I appreciate the kind words, and the best of luck to you and the team. Thank you, Jeff. Take care.